Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. As a regular occurrence in communities which are populated by African-Americans and people of color, police misconduct appears to be the order of the day. The fact that police misconduct continues to occur in these communities has resulted in a high level of animosity and mistrust and regularly the communities respond to these occurrences with protests, marches, and verbal confrontations with police and elected officials. These community feelings of hostility are exacerbated when police departments fail to hold offending officers accountable for their conduct. City officials abandon their duty of oversight and prosecutors refuse to pursue criminal charges. All too often, these are failures to obtain official sanctions for, for, for police misconduct are further aggravated by the legal doctrine of qualified immunity, which serves as a judicial barrier to the ability of the injured persons or states to pursue personal civil suits against the offending police officer. As grafted into civil rights law, qualified immunity provides that a police officer who is performing a discretionary function is shielded from personal liability unless their specific conduct does not violate clearly established statutory or constitutional law that a reasonable police officer would have known. In practice, the use of this doctrine has caused significant anguish and anxiety within communities which are inhabited by African-Americans and by people of color. The scope of this qualified immunity doctrine is the subject of considerable discussion within our community, the legal community, and presently even in Congress. What is this doctrine? How and when it is to be used and whether its use can be limited or reformed on topics of our discussion tonight. Joining us for this discussion are two legal experts. Professor Cami Chavis, who is the Vice Provost for Academic Affairs and the Professor of Law at Wake Forest University School of Law, and is also the Director of the Criminal Justice Program at that uh, institution. She is joined by Attorney Christy Gronke, who is the Legal Director of the North Carolina ACLU. Thank you all for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you. Great, it's uh, re really great to uh, to have you and to talk about this specific topic uh, in light of the uh, congressional uh, discussions about uh, the continuation of the uh, qualified immunity doctrine. But starting us off in uh, in, in in our discussion, I want to start with uh, Attorney Gronke. Uh, can you just describe to our audience uh, the the involvement? 
that you are having as the legal director of the North Carolina ACLU and what is it that uh, the uh, ACLU is working on uh, at, uh, at present? Sure, so we are a statewide organization focused on enforcing and vindicating um, the constitutional rights of North Carolinians, both under, under our federal constitution and the state constitution. Um, we're handling a number of cases right now. Um, one of the things we are uh, working on is vindicating the First Amendment rights of protesters, um, many uh, people coming out into the streets and communities um, as part of the Black Lives Matter movement, um, protesting police brutality. We have been working to defend their constitutional rights to protest. Um, other issues that we work on are the rights of incarcerated people, particularly the rights of people to um, have humane and safe um, living conditions in North Carolina prisons. So those are just two examples of, of major issues that we're working on right now. Okay, and uh, uh, Professor uh, Chavis, I know that you are a uh, 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 researcher and writer and litigator, and you've uh, worked uh, in all kinds of uh, different uh, areas of our criminal justice uh, process. So can you kind of talk about uh, your recent involvements and uh, uh, particularly as it relates to this issue dealing with uh, criminal justice uh, reform and criminal justice issues? Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, uh, over the past, I, I started out my career um, as, as a prosecutor. So I was able to see uh, firsthand the uh, inner workings of our criminal justice system. And I was also able to see the disparities, uh, racial disparities and inequities that, uh, that exist. And uh, I will say that even though we are, I, I, I won't call it a, a moment, I'll, I'll take a, a line from Lin-Manuel Miranda and say it's not a moment, it's a movement. Um, this criminal justice uh, revolution, um, I, I would hope uh, to, to see um, but it has been ongoing. Um, I think it, the climax really was the, the death, the murder of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin. But we also know that that was uh, one of many of a long line of um, police, unjustified uh, police killings um, uh, of, of Black men in, in our country. And so um, a lot of the things that are being talked about today are things that uh, many of us in the realm of, of police accountability and criminal justice reform have known for many years. Um, and I'll say, and I know that we'll get into this later, there are a lot of uh, policies, a lot of ways to hold uh, police officers and law enforcement agencies accountable. Um, but none of these are really new. We've been talking about these for a long time. And I think what's changed is just when you see someone killed um, in, in front of, of you on the street, and that's broadcast to the world, that uh, tends to get, get folks in motion. So I think that's the context of where we are right now. Well, let me just uh, just ask both of you, uh, from, from your perspective, what is the uh, impact on the uh, community of uh, the failure to hold police officers accountable for actual misconduct or the perception of uh, misconduct that occurs in their, uh, in their local uh, uh, communities? So let's just start with uh, Professor Chavis. Yes. Uh, so when you and there are a number of different ways that you can hold that that we as a society can hold police officers uh, accountable, and that might be 
through civil lawsuits, which um, are made uh, more difficult by the, the barrier of qualified immunity, immunity, which we'll talk about. But um, aside from that, there are, of course, criminal um, well, there's criminal penalties that can be uh, levied against the police officers who commit those crimes. But in any event, the failure to address either externally or internally really undermines the legitimacy of the criminal justice system in, in the eyes of those in the community. When you have, um, and it's, it's exacerbated when you have, you know, racial minorities who we know Black uh, people in this country are more than two more than two times likely to be shot uh, by a police officer than their white counterparts. So when you have that type of disparity and dynamic, you're really saying, well, our, our lives uh, as, as Black people don't, uh, don't matter. They don't count as much. We're not going to investigate. We're not going to hold this person accountable. Um, these actions can happen um, with impunity. And so uh, the the message that that sends uh, to many to many people in those communities is that is one of two messages I think is that law you know that law enforcement they don't they don't care um, uh, about us and so therefore we have to take things into our own hands uh, right to protect ourselves and our communities and we can't rely on uh, on on police when they're called because as a victim, if we're calling as a victim, then we may end up um, a victim of, of police misconduct um, at, on one hand. And then the other hand is um, really not to uh, engage at all. And uh, as a former prosecutor, I think it's very important there, um, there is a need uh, for law enforcement. Um, I'm not, I, we may get into discussions about defunding the police that I am not an advocate uh, of that, there there is a role for the criminal justice system in our community, but it should be uh, one that is uh, fair, constitutional, uh, impartial. And uh, when we don't see that, uh, we see um, an inability of those communities to partner with uh, law enforcement agencies uh, to help keep communities safe. Okay. Yeah, I, I'd echo. Um a lot of what's been said, particularly around the theme of distrust and lack of faith in the system, and, and more broadly, just looking at our constitutions. I mean, we all know that both in North Carolina and our federal constitution, the origin story is, <laughs> to put it mildly, extremely problematic. These were documents that were not drafted with the rights of all people in mind. They were drafted with the rights of, of white men in mind and, um, and, 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 and institutionalized slavery. And so it's understandable that people have a tremendous amount of distrust, distrust in the ability of these documents to stand for something and protect lives and protect um, the dignity to which we are all entitled. Um, but, but seeing it also play out in the courts that when people do go and try to enforce their rights, that they're being turned away in the, in, the, in the process that they're not even receiving, and this goes to the qualified immunity issues, that they're not even receiving compensation with, for serious, serious injuries that are done to them. Um, that tends to reduce that faith. I would, I would also just point to the electoral system. Um, you know, in North Carolina, of course, sheriffs are elected. Um, there are many local officials who are elected, and, and, and ideally, one would be able to hold um, those officials accountable through the electoral process. But as we know, the freedom of our elections has been endangered for some time and is eroding. And so that's a that's a larger issue, I think, that leads to this lack of faith and lack of accountability. Well, let's let's just talk about then uh, this this notion of uh, qualified uh, uh, immunity. Uh, what the hell is it? <laughs> and how and how do, how does it impact 
this, uh, this process of, uh, of accountability and uh, transparency with uh, uh, this uh, police uh, misconduct. Uh, so uh, uh, Attorney Gronke, you wanna start us out uh, with, with that? Sure. Um, so Professor Joyner, you laid out the, the foundational idea, which is that um, you, know, you can go to court and say my constitutional rights were violated by a police officer, I was I was beaten, I was um, you know in some cases, of course we've seen people killed, um, and uh, their families may wish to go to court and say constitutional rights were violated, a person's life was taken by the police in an unconstitutional manner, but the court will ask, um, well, was it clearly what were the police's actions clearly illegal under existing law? Were they clearly on notice that they were violating um, a person's constitutional rights when they? Um, acted violently towards uh, the individual. And, and that is, um, has turned out to be an enormous barrier because you see, first of all, um, the doctrine, this is, a, this is a judge-made doctrine that's coming from the uh, United States Supreme Court largely in the 1980s. Um, you're seeing uh, the Supreme Court saying, well, even if one officer out there could have reasonably believed that what they were doing was lawful, even if it caused tremendous harm, that um, the person who was injured or their family um, can't get damages for what happened. Um, and that has an enormous practical ramifications, which I can go into. But but I think what we're talking about, and I'm hearing the framing here is, is accountability, that this takes away a major means of accountability that people have in seeking um, vindication of their constitutional rights and ensuring that public officials comply with the Constitution. If they don't have to pay for the harm that they cause, that is a major um, deterrent to real accountability and change. Yes, um, I, I would add that the, uh, and so when you think about the, the underlying rationale for the doctrine, it's so that, uh, you know, a public servants like, and I, and I think this is really interesting because it, what it does show is that police officers are public servants. They are there to serve the public. So that should be, you know, again, when we're thinking about this conversation, but um, the idea that that, pub, that you wouldn't have a chilling effect from those public servants that are doing their, their jobs, that they might make uh, mistakes in the course of doing that. And you, um, and so qualified immunity operates as a defense um, in order to uh, shield them uh, from, from liability. I think what's uh, extremely problematic about that is that it, it is adding another layer because remember we already have um, the fourth amendment that says um, it, you know, if, if an officer, if, if you're thinking about the use of force, that force has to be reasonable. And what the doctrine of qualified immunity does is it says, okay, so even if it was unreasonable, it had to be clearly established. So you could have a conduct that might be deemed unreasonable under the, the Fourth Amendment, um, but because no other Supreme Court case or circuit court case um, clearly established that conduct, you have a long wait, you know, um, it, before that conduct might be um, uh, clearly established. So it does uh, put in place an additional uh, barrier. Um, and as we talk more about it though, um, and, and I uh, am a proponent of, we need to you know, remove these, these barriers for qualified uh, immunity, but I think it still is one piece of a much larger puzzle um, that uh, that we need to think about in terms of accountability. 
And I'd like to pick up on a, a point that you just made, um, Professor Chavis, about the Fourth Amendment um, pro- necessitating that force be reasonable. And then we've got qualified immunity, which all of you have mentioned is a judge-made barrier and this tension between what the Constitution demands and requires and the protection it provides and the judicial branch, the Supreme Court, especially how the court has undercut the Constitution and how that can be. So we're going to have to take a, a quick break. But when we come back, as you all discuss my, my question, uh, if you can explain how it is that the court is able to dilute uh, the constitutional rights that are um, expressed, represented in the Fourth Amendment, as Professor Chavis, you just mentioned. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about qualified immunity. We have here with us in our Zoom studio, Professor Cami Chavis. She is the Vice Provost of Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at Wake Forest University School of Law. And also attorney Christy Gonke, who is the Legal Director of the North Carolina ACLU. We're gonna take a quick break. We hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African-American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre-law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self-advocacy. Both the pre-law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high-definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with attorney Christy Gronke, who is the legal director of the North Carolina ACLU and Professor Cami Chavis, who is the vice provost and professor of law at the Wake Forest University School of Law. And this hour, we've been talking about qualified immunity. And right before the break, we were, I was asking our guests to help us understand how you can have a judge-made doctrine that appears to dilute and undercut the protections that are established in the Constitution. Uh, Professor Chavis, do you want to uh, take a first stab at this? Uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, so it's, what's really interesting is that, you know, we have a lot of, uh, particularly in the realm of, of criminal procedure, this is, a uh, you know, a, a dealing with uh, Section 1983 uh, tort liability, but um, it, the court often uh, will have a broad rule, and then we see 
the progeny of the cases kind of uh, shorten uh, the the or etch away, I guess, uh, at uh, at the right. So um, I think that when we think about why would the court, again, the kind of the underlying rationale of doing this, I mentioned earlier um, the, the chilling effect that uh, it's been, often been cited that there would be a chilling effect if you didn't have this, um, this protection for, um, and, you know, qualified immunity, we're talking about it in the context of police officers, but it of course also extends to other um, public actors, prosecutors, you know, as, as well. Um, and you know other the other rationales you know it, would the courts be flooded with uh, other with frivolous lawsuits right if we if we didn't have this so it kind of acts as a barrier in that way I actually think that those um, that those issues are overstated uh, and I was mentioning before the the break that I think that you know so if we eliminate qualified immunity that is not going to that that's not going to solve the problem of uh, police accountability that we have in our our country but I also want to uh, reiterate that I think the uh, underlying rationale for having such a doctrine is also overstated attorney Gronke I think all of that is right. I think um, some of this comes from this notion of the common law and certain privileges that uh, public officials have enjoyed supposedly from time immemorial. But I think you've seen that really go off the rails and be expanded. I mean, even if you are a conservative, you are a strict constructionist. Um, you know, Justice Thomas recently wrote a very interesting dissent from a denial of a, um, a petition for a writ of certiorari where he said, look, I don't really think this um, qualified immunity doctrine comes from anywhere. And we, we need to take a really hard look at it because it's not in the text of 42 U.S.C. 1983, which is the statute that most of us use to enforce uh, federal constitutional rights in court. Um, and uh, there's some real question here about whether these privileges that um, or these immunities um, are actually grounded in our common law tradition as, as forcefully. Um, it seems to be, and Justice Thomas observed, and, and Professor Chavis said this as well, that, that it's really about um, saving public officials from the supposed inconvenience of, of the suit. And why, why is that such, even if you accept that that is sort of a, a public policy rationale, why is that more important than compensating people for grievous injuries that are being done them that have economic and emotional and um, physical harm uh, that's being done, those injuries are very real to families and the individuals who suffer them. And why shouldn't they be entitled to compensation under the law for that? Uh, it seems to me that we're making um, a bad policy choice there as well. Well, you know, as, as we talk about it uh, here, we, we kind of focus in on uh, police officers, but uh, you mentioned uh, earlier that this, uh, this doctrine of qualified immunity is much broader than uh, police officers and that it uh, covers uh, uh, public officials in every realm. Uh, why isn't there the controversy with the use of qualified immunity with other public officials as opposed to the controversy that we see uh, attending to the uh, uh, use of this doctrine with uh, police misconduct? Professor Chavis, take it. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to say very quickly that I mean that's a that's a really good question that we should also that we should all be thinking about, and um, particularly when um, police officers are the only 
uh, actors in our society other than maybe the military, but the only public actors uh, who can use force, who are allowed to use force, and if justified, deadly force, lethal force in the course of their duties. And so um, it should be, in my opinion, that there would be a higher burden, right, for, uh, for those uh, actors and to, to exercise uh, more care. Um, and even as I say that, though, I can hear um, in, in my in my head the the counter argument and what some you know police executives might be saying and saying, well, it's been hard enough now to get um, to get uh, you know qualified police officers you know into our our uh, agencies and you know we're having a problem with hiring. I can I can hear that argument, but I'll also say that. Um, What's really important um, to, to remember in this conversation is that even if these police officers are sued in their individual capacity, and this is what we're talking about, how qualified immunity would operate to shield them from that, they are often um, in, indemnified. They are not going, they are judged, these officers are likely going to be judgment proof. When you think about the salary that an average law enforcement officer makes and <clears throat> even um, and, and, and even with, you know, the wealth or whatever that they will have accumulated, these suits, if you have something like, um, you know, I'm thinking about um, a Freddie Gray case, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, these settlements in the double digit, you know, multi-million dollar cases, individual police officers are not going to be paying this. They're going to be uh, indemnified um, anyway. And we also have been, you know, the, the concept of municipal liability and the deep pockets of, uh, of those states and those insurance um, uh, payments. So it, it really is, it's not just symbolic, but it really uh, is when we're thinking about um, whether or not these officers are going to be able to pay these settlements. They're not, they're likely not, but having the, the threat of being sued um, certainly um, could deter a police officer from using unreasonable force, even if it had not been clearly established, which is what they should be doing anyway under the Fourth Amendment. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think also that creating that, um, if, if there were liability, if qualified immunity did not exist, I think you would see, I, ideally, I think you would see local governments and local police departments being more careful about who they hire and how they train and really saying, okay, well, we know we're going to have to pay out if, if, if you, um, officer on the street, hurt somebody in, in the line of duty unconstitutionally. And um, that should provide an incentive for the kind of training and the de-escalation that we need to be seeing more of, the connection of people um, who are committing minor offenses with mental health care treatment, for example, instead of going straight to arresting people, all those things, there might be more incentives for that if municipal leaders were actually going to be holding the, the um, we're going to be liable here. The, uh, the, the notion that you have to find uh, what is called clearly, um, clearly described uh, prior incident where the officer would have known that the exact conduct in which they are engaged has been determined to be uh, unconstitutional in past legal uh, decisions. How, how problematic uh, is, uh, is that uh, requirement? Let's start with uh, Attorney Grocky. 
well, having lost at the Fourth Circuit on a case because I didn't have an identical case out there with identical facts, I think it's super problematic. Um, and I will say that um, uh, uh, um, one of the things that you're seeing now is that some courts, I think lower courts in particular, um, district courts and circuit courts are starting to take up a little bit more of the drumbeat of, hey, even if there are novel facts, you can still find that that the law is clearly established that that um, an, a reasonable officer should have known they were violating somebody's um, constitutional rights, even if an identical factual case out there didn't exist. You're seeing, I think, a bubbling up of more courts willing to say, you know, you should have known even if there wasn't a case out there. But it has been a real problem. Um, and, and actually, the Supreme Court, I, I should say, just issued a decision where they said that very thing, that all the facts were not um, replicated elsewhere in the case law, that they would still find that, um, that, that they were sufficiently outrageous that a reasonable um, official would have known they were violating the person's rights. So there's some resistance to that, but it, it's, it's a, a huge impediment. And I will also say that the clearly established prong in particular is an impediment to the development of the law, because the Supreme Court has said, Hey, in some cases, you don't even have to decide whether a constitutional violation occurred. You can go straight into deciding if this theoretically was a constitutional violation, was it clearly established? And that has caused, to my mind, a lot of mischief because it's allowed for repetitive constitutional violations to occur with no court precedent establishing that this is unlawful conduct. And therefore, you don't get that clearly established law that puts the next person on notice, according to the to the mainstream uh, doctrine on this. So. It's just, it's really um, stunted the, the development of the law in some very troubling ways. Yes, and that's exactly, um, those are exactly my thoughts in that um, what uh, Attorney Grafie said in terms of um, stunning the development of the law and what it does is it it does give that first, that, no, that novel case um, a, you know, every, you get a first, a first pass really at violating someone's constitutional rights. And if we look at some of the fact patterns of some of the cases that um, have come up, I mean, um, you can easily see that there's some egregious behavior that then has the, the officer in their individual capacity has gotten uh, a pass, you know, shooting one case I'm thinking about is, you know, shooting recklessly um, at, um, at, at a dog and then the, they actually hit a 10 year old boy. Well, that was, um, and then the officer, you know, couldn't uh, be found um, responsible uh, in their individual capacity. And so it's really giving, you know, people a, a first pass at some very egregious, deadly behavior. Professor Chavis, you mentioned um, the statute um, 1983, which gives the ability of an individual to sue under tort liability for the civil claims. Um, can you talk about a little bit of the history of that um, of that law, why it came to be in the first place, and um, how qualified immunity being applied to it by the courts um, remove some of the power that the the law um, provided, uh, particularly in the historical context in which that statute and the history of that statute was enacted. Right. So when we think about um, the history of the statute, I think you I think what you are alluding to is um, kind of the, the Ku Klux Klan acts and the um, and, and again, this is, you know, if someone acted under the color of state law, you really wanting to say that, I mean, the federal government will need to have the, the, the power to say you cannot 
uh, violate someone's uh, federal civil civil rights or their constitutional rights. And um, that's a very powerful uh, statement when you think about um, a lot of these, um, a lot of the, again, the development uh, or uh, originally originating in um, during the reconstruction period, when you think about that um, and then for the court to come along later and to, as I alluded to earlier, because to kind of etch away um, at, uh, at, that, at that power and to say, okay, well, even if it's, you know, um, un unreasonable, uh, if you, and you acted under the color of law and you violated, uh, let's just say the Fourth Amendment, in, you know, unreasonable manner, it had to be clearly um, uh, established. Again, it's, take, it's almost like you're taking two steps forward and one step back. Um, and you're uh, again allowing for this broad swath of behavior to go uh, unrecognized, unaccounted for um, until the law has an opportunity uh, to, to catch up. And you know that is in, in, in when we think about um, you know wanting wanting people to be on notice. I'm not saying that we don't want people to be on notice for uh, for behavior you know for which they could be sued or you know, in other instances, criminally prosecuted. It's not about that, um, but it is about um, that, again, as um, Attorney Gronke was uh, saying, and I'm, I think that it is, there, there has been some, some favorable Supreme Court case law on this when you're thinking about, um, yes, but if a reasonable officer should have known that, that this would have been uh, uh, unconstitutional, then there may be some leeway there. So it, it is, it is, it should not go unrecognized. Um, the reasons that we have uh, statutes like um, like 1983, uh, and then the the efforts of the judiciary to again etch away at those um, at those rights. Well, let me just uh, raise this question in terms of uh, the the procedure that is involved with these. Uh, uh, qualified immunity uh, claims where uh, once a lawsuit is filed, uh, the officer has the uh, responsibility of pleading. Uh, but once it is pled, then that legal determination has to be made before there can be any determination of uh, the uh, merits of the underlying claim. And uh, you mentioned, uh, 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 Attorney uh, Rocky, that uh, uh, the uh, in some instances the court has just dispensed completely with a uh, determination of the merits and just uh, uh, decided the case based on that uh, issue of qualified immunity. But I, I guess I'm really kind of focused on the time that is expended necessarily in addressing this uh, qualified immunity and what happens with the, uh, the, 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 the merit, merits case that's there. So could you kind of speak to that? Yeah, well, it's a huge barrier to um, just the progression of the litigation and any sort of reasonable speed. Again, you know, thinking about human beings who are being impacted by this, people seeking compensation and justice and accountability. And it, it introduces a great amount of delay. 
Usually it's pled, um, you know, in the answer or um, sometimes a motion to dismiss will be filed on the grounds um, of qualified immunity. And so very early in the case and the Supreme Court has actually said, well, it's preferable that we resolve this as early as possible in the case. And so you'll often see this being raised at the motion to dismiss stage. Um, sometimes plaintiffs can survive that motion to dismiss by saying, hey, we need discovery here. We need investigation of the facts um, underlying what happened here to show that we can overcome qualified immunity, that we can show that the officer you know, clearly acted unreasonably and clearly violated our client's constitutional rights. Um, and um, so, so you can go into that discovery and then it will come up again at the summary judgment stage. But some judges really uh, want to use it as a barrier to discovery in the first instance, and even, you know, denying the litigants the ability to conduct that investigation and to air out the facts of what happened. Um, that That's a real um, issue. And I have even practiced in some districts where there would be local court rules that say, hey, if they're, um, if, if the defendant is pleading qualified immunity, there will be no discovery until that defense is resolved. And so you just get very stuck um, and at the most, you get very, very narrow discovery on what the court defines as the issues that are most germane to qualified immunity. You don't get broader discovery. So there are a lot of ways that it slows down and stymies that what we think of as a primary purpose of justice, which is the pursuit of truth and, and accountability. All right. This is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we are discussing uh, this evening uh, qualified uh, immunity. And it is a doctrine that has shielded uh, police officers uh, from accountability for their uh, misconduct, misdeeds, and uh, more often than not, uh, it is something that is widely used with uh, police killing cases, uh, and people know about it. But we had two experts uh, here, legal experts uh, in this area, that we've been talking with uh, about that. Want you to uh, stay with us. We're going to take a break. Uh, right now, we'll be right back where we will then continue uh, this uh, discussion of qualified uh, immunity. So we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show or past episodes or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wiss II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and we are talking with uh, Professor uh, Cammie Chavis uh, from the uh, Wake Forest University uh, School of Law, where she is the uh, vice provost and uh, is uh, a professor of law uh, there and is the uh, director of this uh, criminal justice uh, program. And uh, we have attorney uh, Christy Gronke, who is the uh, legal director of the North Carolina ACLU 
with us uh, this evening, trying to help you to better understand this notion of uh, qualified uh, immunity. Um, they talk about uh, in this uh, in this law uh, the necessity of finding an objective determination of uh, the uh, conduct. What 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 do they mean uh, by that? Let's let's start with uh, uh, Professor Chavis on that. So uh, we typically see in uh, when we're thinking about. Uh, and, that, and I come from the you know, criminal pr procedure uh, background, but when we're thinking about um, the conduct of officers, it's usually going to be viewed um, as what a reasonable officer in that situation would have done, right? So an objective uh, determ determination, um, we, we, we see that. We're not asking um, necessarily uh, for the subjective uh, intentions of that particular officer, but uh, viewed from an objective third person, you know, reasonable uh, person um, in those circumstances. Yeah, and I, I just to build on that, I think what is so problematic about that is what is what is reasonable, and we know that reasonable is the pot into which judges and um, you know other decision makers put their own biases and their own thoughts, and, and too often um, judges will side with the police. Um, they uh, many of them are former prosecutors, and this is a, a larger discussion about what it means to have um, diversity on the bench, but. Uh, many of them are coming from that law enforcement sympathetic background, and they see things from the perspective of the police. And so, you know, when they say, well, what is re what a reasonable officer would have known, they're coming into it with that, that mindset. And that is, um, I think, a huge barrier to the workability of this doctrine in terms of securing justice for, for people um, or, or serving as a barrier to justice. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about um, this barrier being created by the courts. Um, Attorney Gronke, you just noted that a lot of judges will side with law enforcement because you've got a number that are former prosecutors. And so we know that this issue, we can't rely upon the courts to solve it. The courts created it. The courts are supporting it. We can't rely upon the courts to solve it. So can you both talk about what Congress can do? And, and if you could first explain why it is that even though this is a judge-made doctrine by the Supreme Court, so the Supreme Court um, established qualified immunity, that Congress is still able to undo what the Supreme Court did. Because oftentimes when we're thinking about constitutional matters, we know that the Supreme Court is the last word, but when it comes to qualified immunity, Congress actually has a lot of power and control. Uh, well, one of the things that I, uh, in sort of looking at the legislation that is now being considered by Congress to end qualified immunity or, or certainly to modify it, um, the way that I see the legislators attacking this is through um, 42 USC 1983. And, and this is, again, the statute that allows people to sue for damages for constitutional and statutory violations of their rights and putting language in there that says, you know, the following will not be a defense to and then basically putting in the qualified immunity doctrine and saying that that defense will no longer be viable to actions under that statute. And since Congress controls the statute, it can really um, put in that language to control how the statute will be interpreted by the court. So I think that would go a long way towards dismantling this judge-made doctrine. Now, you may see it seep in around the edges um, in some other um, causes of action or, um, you know, 
there, there may be some mischief that can't be contained there. Um, but I think coupled with that, one, one thing I will say, too, is that we know that the Supreme Court moves at the speed of society or sometimes much, much slower. And so coupled with the movement that we're seeing happening around the country, the activism around qualified immunity, people didn't know about it, except for a couple of plaintiffs lawyers, people didn't really know about. Um, you know, coupled that, coupled with the um, Congress taking action, we may see the Supreme Court shift in its attitude as well. So I have some hope there, but I think the legislature, you know, the Congress is going to have to lead the way. And I would also uh, just add that, so yeah, that's it, we're the Supreme Court and we're talking about the federal statute, um, US 42-1983, but there have been a number of states um, and even uh, some cities that have, uh, that have again, um, eliminated the defense of qualified immunity under um, the state constitution, for, for example, um, under the state constitution, and then they would, uh, say that uh, if you wanted to, to sue, you know, under the analogous um, uh, state statute to the federal statute that you would not have a defense. So um, if that might help, I, I think that what we're seeing, um, again, is this shift in society. And um, it really is a testament to uh, the local, uh, that, that so much of police um, accountability and and eliminating and reducing, ameliorating police misconduct can really be accomplished at the state and local level. We still have to rely on uh, federal uh, jurisdictions because there are going to be a lot of jurisdictions that aren't going to touch this at all. And we don't want to have a patchwork of, 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 uh, of remedies. And so I'm definitely in favor of the uh, George Floyd uh, Policing Act. Hope the Senate can, can uh, you know, uh, do some, some magic there. We need uh, federal uh, reform, but this is not to say that there's not power in our local and state communities. There's an incredible amount of power there that can be accomplished. But, but as it relates to uh, 1983, uh, qualified immunity seemingly is uh, is still in place, and and I raise a question about the um, uh, whether Congress can really alter that doctrine or not. I look at, for instance, uh, uh, the Supreme Court's uh, response to the Miranda uh, decision, where Congress enacted uh, a uh, a statute that was designed to. Uh, uh, minimize the impact of, uh, of Miranda. And the uh, court responded in, in the uh, Dickinson case by saying, look, this, this is a judicial matter and Congress doesn't have the authority uh, to uh, tell us uh, what uh, we can't uh, uh, create under Article III. Uh, is, is, is this really something similar uh, to that where the court now is going to question Congress's authority? to undermine a court-created doctrine? What do you think? Well, I think with, with Justice Thomas writing a dissent saying, I don't know where this doctrine came from, but it doesn't seem to come from anywhere legitimate, my hopes are higher that the court will be less inclined to tamper with Congress on this. I mean, the other thing I would say is like for, for, for the Supreme Court to be able to block uh, statutory reform to 42 U.S.C. 1983, I would think that they would have to find that public officials have some sort of constitutional right to be defended or to, to have this defense against constitutional violations uh, or um, allegations being brought against them. And I, I don't see where they would get that. I think what this is coming from is this sort of notion, which may or may not be accurate, of common law immunity. 
But then I think that Congress can tamper with common the common law. That is the meaning of statute to, to basically override or to um, alter the common law. That's why you need statutes. So I'm I'm a little maybe more cheerful about this uh, than I should be, but but I have some hope here. I don't know what Professor Chavis thinks, but. No, um, I I agree with that. Uh, I think that uh, I think that you're um, gonna and you're and you've um, invoked uh, uh, Justice Thomas a, a few times during our conversation. And what uh, and so yeah, when we think back to the uh, strict uh, originalism, you know, this uh, may be <laughs> favorable um, for for this particular issue. Um, and I think that there are I've um, been in conversations with. Uh, different folks, and there um, actually is some bipartisan um, support for, if not eliminating it completely, for certainly for modifying um, uh, or having um, the ability to have um, more of a de defense in, in these cases, because uh, otherwise, and if you think about this from, for example, like a libertarian point of view, uh, otherwise you really uh, have an, a wide opening for the overreach of the of the federal government into individual lives. So that's where we get um, that bipartisan, potential bipartisan um, support. What we're not going to see um, is the support from the police unions um, in, in this at all. That would, we will not see that um, support for modifying. And that, that's a undoubtedly a very powerful lobby. So I should, maybe yeah. that will pr prove to be the barrier in Congress, certainly, to, to getting this done. Yeah, and that raises a question that I had. Professor Chavis, you mentioned that the, you know, those that oppose qualified, the elimination of qualified immunity will argue that if we don't have, if law enforcement doesn't have that protection, then there won't be people who are willing to go into that profession. Um, can you expand upon that a little bit? And can you both talk about what are the other arguments against qualified immunity? Like, you know, it, it seems, you know, maybe somewhat obvious why the police unions would be, but um, if you could just expand upon that a little bit. So, um, if, you know, again, arguing um, against eliminating qualified immunity, um, you know, if I were a police officer, uh, I may say, well, um, then that means every time I go out into, into the field and I make a mistake, <laughs> right? And again, this is, you know, their argument um, would be, I would be su subjecting myself um, to a huge, uh, you know, torts, uh, torts suit. Um, and that's just not, for, first of all, you should not be making um, unreasonable uh, mistakes. Um, and there are, uh, there are other constitutional doctrines that, that uh, protect for that. And as we just discussed, um, even that standard is, somewhat favorable to an officer, right? It has to, you know, again, the, an objective standard. Um, and you often hear, uh, well, this police officer was in, you know, a rapidly unfolding situation and had to make a snap judgment um, decision and that kind of thing. And so there's already a great, a great amount of, of protection uh, there. But the argument, I think, from, from that side would be, well, we're going to subject these folks to uh, more uh, lawsuits. Um, and then uh, when we think about um, from like the, um, the uh, standpoint of the courts, are we gonna have a the, open the floodgates of, of litigation, qualified immunity, anything that kind of acts as a barrier to litigation um, can be seen as keeping our 
our court system moving. So if we um, if we let go of that barrier and are we going to have you know the, the floodgates uh, open into litigation? And again, as I said, I think both of those arguments, both from the uh, systemic uh, court uh, point of view and from an officer's uh, individual officer's point of view, are are overstated. Um, we're just we're we're not going to have. Um, uh, more lawsuits. Um, we will have, you should, we should have more lawsuits, but we are not going to have more than our system can bear. Um, and these, again, are very serious cases, usually, that we're talking about. Usually, we're talking about vindicating or compensating a family for the death of, of a loved one. And so, uh, if our court system should be operating, it should be operating for those types of cases. I would agree with all of that and also just underscore that I mean, we should care about our, the truth sinking func function of um, our courts as well and, and really shutting people out at the courthouse door, which is what qualified immunity really does, is we don't get to find out, well, was that officer split second decision really reasonable? Was it? We don't get to discover those facts. Um, and that is um, critical on a number of levels. And as a society, we should be concerned about getting to the bottom of what's happened and seeking um, getting compensation for people whose, whose rights are violated and who are harmed. And a point that both of you made is that uh, removing qualified immunity will increase accountability, not just for those officers. So we would hope that we would have even fewer instances where you have unreasonable action, but also uh, that it will force agencies, uh, local governments to be more accountable as well, because you all have also mentioned that uh, the indemnification, so it's not typically, Professor Chavis, you mentioned, it's not typically that individual officer who is going to have to pay uh, those damages that they will be indemnified by the, the city or the county, um, which means that, you know, the, the local government will take better steps to make sure that they're hiring uh, people who are um, able to conform with the law, that they are doing proper training, that so that the removal of qualified immunity may not necessarily increase the cases because maybe we will have better law enforcement. So we have just a few minutes left. Can both of you kind of talk about or give suggestions to the community, people who are listening to this show, who might want to um, learn more about qualified immunity um, and, and what we can do to as a community to help encourage and motivate our elected officials to to do more because attorney Gronke, as you noted a lot of people didn't know about qualified immunity before the murder of george floyd and so there's a lot of interest in the community what can we do to ensure that movement is done in this space well, um, I'm biased, but I think the ACLU uh, national website, aclu.org, has some really great materials on qualified immunity, how it's been working, how it has specifically denied justice in some just outrageous and deplorable situations. Um, I think that's a great place to start. And also you can get information there about pending, pending legislation um, and decide whether you want to contact your elected officials about that. Um, but I, I really also hope that people are, um, I hope that this becomes an issue when we think about um, selecting um, our certainly elected officials that we ask them about that. I believe it was even an issue in a senatorial debate um, this last time around. It should be. People should be talking about it. 
and also to encourage people to think about it when they think about, um, you know, this is more to indirect, but who are we appointing as judges? Um, and at the state level, to the extent that immunity is available, it's, it's different in North Carolina, but, you know, we want judges to be talking about this and to be sharing their views on it so we understand more. Yes, um, I, would, I would just say this is just another um, time to, to point out that elections do matter um, because uh, whoever is elected, are, they're going to appoint the judges or sometimes where we elect judges, right, who will be considering um, these cases. And that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is to really, again, um, when, you're make, when we're making these um, arguments, really educating ourselves about them because the, the true fact of the matter is that, and Joanna Schwartz is a, um, is a, a researcher who's done a lot of research, Joanna Schwartz has done a lot of research um, uh, on uh, police indemnification. And she's basically said that um, officers have only been found in, in, she did a study over a six year period 81 jurisdictions and found that officers were personally responsible for just 0.02% of dollars paid to plaintiffs in police misconduct suits. So 0.02% of dollars paid to plaintiffs in police misconduct suits have come out of the pockets of, of police officers. That is a very small amount that, um, uh, again, and so I, I think, again, it's overstated the impact that it will have on officers individually, but it is eliminating um, the barrier, um, the barriers uh, that qualified immunity erects is uh, an important piece of the police accountability puzzle because it does streamline the ability to have these civil rights suits, as um, as Attorney Gronke said, in order to get that discovery, to figure out what's going on, what's happening. When we have that discovery and we can figure out what's going on, what's happening, then we can begin to implement broader policy uh, changes when these, these issues come to light. Um, and I guess uh, I would just say that um, I, I, a lot of people have kind of hung their hat on uh, qualified immunity as a reform. And again, I would just emphasize it is important. Um, we should do it, we should look at doing it, but we cannot neglect all of the other pieces um, of police accountability. And that's um, making sure that, and that starts with uh, how and who we hire to be police officers and how we train them to police our communities and valuing the sanctity of life above, uh, above all else. All right. Well, great. Thank you both for this wonderful, enlightening and educational discussion. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Cami Chavis, Vice Provost and Professor of Law at Wake Forest University School of Law, and Christy Gronke, who is an attorney and legal director for the North Carolina ACLU. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something where we are sure that you have. If you have any comments about the show or if there are any topics you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleagoreview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.